Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars and today is Saturday, December 10th, 2022. And we have reached episode 85. As the year draws to a close, I find myself taking stock of where I am in my life and looking at how I can improve. Probably much like all of you, I am possibly doing a little better than I judge myself to be doing. If we can detach from what we think reality is and truly believe, like we all say, but actually internalize and truly believe that we collectively and individually all matter and that we are children of divinity or we are the children of the universe or we are an integral part of the human race <clears throat> if that's all true shouldn't it be enough to know that we are that we should be and if we allow ourselves to just be that is enough, just the way we are. And if that's true, and I think it is, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't reach higher. We should reach higher as human beings. We, we, we must progress as human beings. But we need to be successful and joyful in that glorious struggle. And I don't think that's happening very much. And I think it boils down to um, we haven't really accepted who and what we are. So I hope you take a moment today uh, to look in the mirror and love what you see, accept what you see. Having said that, <clears throat> we are worthy of a good life. And it just seems that we are presently in a society and a time that would suggest that we are all not worthy of a good life. We might say it, but that certainly isn't being put into practice. Which makes me hearken back to the Renaissance when it seems like humanity was hitting on all cylinders. While I am certain hard times were still had because life is never easy and it's never fair, but the Renaissance was a moment in time when it seemed like the veil of heaven burst open because human beings willed it to and the heaven showered light and knowledge on a human race that was hungry for creativity and ingenuity and was gladly accepting it and embracing it and owning it. These people took those gifts and they ran with them in a spirit of celebration and in a spirit of just being and a celebration of that just being. Prior to the Renaissance period in the Middle Ages, people in general thought that life should always be hard and they were a self-flagellating lot. They believe that an individual must earn a right to live or even to just get by. 
Doesn't that sound familiar? The Dark Ages, where you had to work yourself to death to be deemed worthy or deemed noble or deemed good. It was a time that was filled with war and drudgery and oppression. However, by the 1300s AD, the people of Florence, Italy began to think differently. Now this thought process was happening in other places, but I'm just gonna focus on Florence because of that city's sheer numbers of geniuses, the masterpieces that came out of there, the inventions that came out of Florence. Studying the past lives of the Greeks and Romans, Florentines realized that life could be done in another way. <clears throat> they, um, they introduced a new way of thinking called humanism. Embracing the comforts of life, they reawakened art, culture, science, technology, and music to bring even more joy into life. It was this self-perpetuating uh, glorious acceptance and love and devotion to the future. And each little thing that people did just built on itself and built on itself and built on itself and created more and more and more genius. As Italy was considerably wealthy um, at the time, it was easier for them to extravagantly spend their money on the finer things of life and cultivate this new way of humanism. So they spent their money well. Wealthy merchants frequently secured the services of artisans and craftspeople. So this idea that we have of big box stores, they would have been appalled by that. Even the chairs they sat in must have they must be works of art and um, curious technology. Compet competitions among artists and thinkers occurred more frequently, and this was entertainment to watch these brilliant practitioners kind of go head to head in a friendly way. And sometimes not so friendly, but <clears throat> You saw genius after genius butting heads. Um, art began to flourish. New thoughts began to emerge. So you have this culture that's, you're not just <clears throat> surviving, you want to live. It's, everything's exciting, everything's new. Um, with the entire continent of Europe really spending more and more money on the fine arts the which fine arts was the foundation of the european age of exploration this engendered europe's increasing global power okay education and culture increased their power and yet we want to cut funds to all of that in the united states of 21st century we have a lot to learn from the Renaissance. Not only were the Florentines in particular surviving, they were finding reasons to live more fully. They were more optimistic. They were healthier. 
they were more intelligent and creative than other global citizens. Their self-acceptance, their self-care, and sure, self-indulgence, for sure, <clears throat> this is what made them thrive. This is what made them excited and positive. Their gaze held high. They became a beacon of light to the world, That a light that reaches even to today. That's how glorious that period was. Florence found itself filled with geniuses in art, science, math, technology. If you go to the Basilica of Santa Croce, try to make Florence uh, a part of your bucket list. Try to get there. You go into Santa Croce and that's where all the masters are buried within that basilica. You're going to find Michelangelo. You're going to find Marconi. You're going to find Galileo. All the greats, they're, they're buried right there, like all oh, these geniuses. And Florence was filled with them. Dante, you can go to Dante's house. Oh, just this wonderment. So um, let's talk about this, this word genius. What did genius mean in the Renaissance that it didn't necessarily mean in other times? Okay. So genius generally is relevant to the history of ideas in the following ways. And like the more, um, in the first way, which is the more basic way, in the designation of superior mental powers productive within rare superior performances, or as the designation of a person possessing these powers. Or, um, somebody who has a special talent for some particular type of performance. And the Renaissance encompassed this for sure, but they also looked at it this way, that genius was a peculiar spiritual character of an era, of a nation, or of a single human being. A spiritual character. So again, um, basically speaking, Genius included achievements deemed as such and were regarded primarily as original intellectual work in contrast to imitation. And I, I think that's a fine uh, definition of genius. Now in the Renaissance, individuals canonized as genius were often thought of as supernaturally gifted, as if touched by the divine. The religious root of this 14th century Latin word actually means a guiding spirit. Genius means a guiding spirit, and not only that, but it was present for all human beings. Whether that was acted upon or not, or to what extent, varied, but it was available to all. During the Renaissance and later, two different Latin terms were used for genius, ingenium and genius. They seem to have first acquired this meaning in Italy, where corresponding Italian words ingenio and genio were also used. The fundamental trait of genius for the Renaissance Italians and some others is that it is an innate capability operating with spontaneous facility. 
versus talents that may be taught to you and then you learn more by diligence. Although geniuses do have to work on their, uh, their development and their discipline, um, <clears throat> just like anybody else does. However, it's that quality, that spiritual quality that made people genius. So what is the seed of this innate and spontaneous quality that we call genius that lies in every soul, whether it's apparent or whether it's buried and latent? The Renaissance person would tell us that that seed that creates genius is curiosity. Being curious about everything and curious just for curiosity's sake, not simply because it's useful, is the, the defining trait of a Florentine genius. We're going to talk about Leonardo da Vinci. Now, some would consider, consider him the premier genius of his place and time in this city and time full of geniuses. They elevated him to be numero uno. And his magic lies in how he pushed himself and he taught himself to be a genius. Now, normal everyday folk may never emulate Albert Einstein's mathematical ability, but we all, all of us, whether we have an IQ of 140 or 112 or 90, we all can try to learn from and copy Leonardo's curiosity. So Leonardo, one thing that set him apart was that he made lists in his notebooks and he's got tons of notebooks that still exist to this day of things he wanted to know. Like um, one thing he wanted to know, one thing he was curious about was how do they walk on ice in Holland? He wanted to know. He noticed it and he thought that was a real curiosity. Or when he would be studying birds, he wanted to be able to describe the tongue of a woodpecker. He was curious about that. And again, I think it goes back to self-acceptance and self-delight. If you can recognize your own magic, you can search for it and find it in every other living being. Or in Leonardo's case, even the dead beings he was fascinated by. Leonardo habitually committed to his notebook things of which he was curious. Leonardo da Vinci was born out of wedlock in Florence in 1452 AD or CE, if you prefer. With little formal schooling, he was apprenticed at age 14 to a man who was both an engineer and an artist. And this is where Leonardo's skill and imagination flourished. Florence was very tolerant of a guy like Leonardo who was, he was left-handed, he was gay, he was a vegetarian, he was illegitimate and he was poor and he was fully accepted in Florentine society. And it is helpful, beyond helpful, to have an environment that allows for one's own brand of genius 
to expand, where you could just be, where you can just find acceptance. Leonardo, Leonardo was also incredibly good looking and that's helpful, okay? <clears throat> he was in very good shape. He was extraordinarily athletic. He had long curly hair. Now you have seen this before. His work, The Vitruvian Man, which is that sketch of the man in the middle of a circle and a square, and he's in a spread eagle pose. <clears throat> Researchers believe this was probably a self-portrait. His looks may have opened many doors for him, for sure, but it was his genius that kept him achieving greater heights. Or, if you want to put it another way, his curiosity. Most of all, Leonardo was stunningly inventive. He created a portable bridge, in quote, which you can just pop open in the middle of a battle if you have to cross a river. And if you go to Rome, uh, to the Piazza del Popolo, there is actually a Leonardo da Vinci um, museum, which is kind of behind the Church of Santa Maria del Popolo on the way up to the Borghese Gardens. <clears throat> so uh, you go in there and here's an example of something I saw. It was, it was a portable organ. You wore it. There was a harness where, you know, the baby swings at the, at the park and you put the baby's legs through the holes and there's like kind of this girdle that they're sitting in and you swing them. It looked like that. And you step into it and when you stand up, you're holding this keyboard and you just walk down the street and you play it. That was one of his inventions. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of his other inventions. <clears throat> and it's all this curiosity, his curiosity led to all these inventions, like this portable bridge that I talked about. Uh, he transformed his sketches, so he had a notebook. He was taking notes, but he was also making sketches. So he transformed his sketches into three-dimensional models like his famous helicopter. Yes, he invented the helicopter. Now, the helicopter may have originally been designed for the theater because he was creating all of these amazing stage props and he was having people fly in and descend and ascend on the stage. So the helicopter may have first been invented for the stage. He also created an underwater diving apparatus saying it was a great way to attack ships. In fact, Leonardo da Vinci was actually a pacifist, but he kept these secrets, um, he, like the details of this submergible, he kept it secret for fear that enemies would find it out. <clears throat> he didn't want anyone to, he had these brilliant ideas for warfare, but he didn't share details because he didn't want war, but he knew that it was necessary to defend oneself.
Leonardo's sketches, the sketches themselves, may have set him apart from other prodigies of the world at the time. His drawing of the head of a young woman, um, and because this isn't a, vis a visual podcast, you would know you would know the sketch if you saw it. Um, it's a woman kind of glancing over her shoulder, <clears throat> but it's not just a sketch. This depiction creates a sense of movement. Something seems to have caught her eye and she has turned her head. And this sketch became a study for many paintings he would do later, okay? He didn't just <clears throat> love objects. He wasn't just curious about objects. He understood how humans move. And he also understood that human movement reflected emotions of the mind. And in this drawing of this young maiden, you see a young Leonardo who's on a path to creating the Mona Lisa. Renaissance paintings had had, at that point, <clears throat> a sort of um, sharp line quality to them, but it was Leonardo da Vinci that recognized that this was not the way nature worked. So there's a smokiness to his lines. There's a movement to his lines. Leonardo cared about the parts unseen. So like this woman turning her head, there are muscles in the back that are allowing that to happen in the back of her head and the back of her neck and in her upper back. And even, you know, middle back, there's muscles in action that are helping that happen. And you can't see them in this picture. You can't see what's going on in her chest. But Leonardo da Vinci, he knew what muscles it took for her to turn her head. And so that's why he was able to create something that seemed so real. He taught himself hum human anatomy with dozens of human dissections. So he was often working with cadavers. He documented how the aortic valve and the heart worked, which was something researchers only modern researchers only confirmed in recent years. Leonardo da Vinci figured it out. <clears throat> he realized that the center of the painting or of the drawing, when you're staring at it, you see it in static detail. But with one of his drawings or paintings, if your gaze falls slightly off center, that detail you were just staring at goes to a different part of the retina and gives a sense of movement. So the Mona Lisa, for example, the harder you look directly at her lips, the more it looks like her lips are slightly turned down. But as your eyes soften focus and gaze a little bit away, she seems to smile at you. So the painting sort of flickers. And concerning the Mona Lisa, researchers have asked, did Leonardo da Vinci figure out a way to have a painting flirt with the viewer? Now he certainly did figure out a way to have paintings interact with viewer, viewers. In the Mona Lisa, 
you see the combination of all of Leonardo's knowledge and understanding of anatomy and science combined with his art. Now, in his epic mural, The Last Supper, he captures emotion, spirituality, and drama, which make this painting one of the world's most admired works of art, studied down to the minutest detail. And one of those details may be the origin of one of the world's most familiar superstitions. So in one of these, in one of the greatest biblical moments ever, the Last Supper where Jesus is being betrayed, Leonardo da Vinci depicts Judas knocking over the salt. Now this knocking over the salt has become an omen of bad luck. So if you're at the dinner table and you happen to knock over the salt shaker, somebody might say, oh no, there's bad luck. No, that came from this painting. That's the origin of that superstition is from the Last Supper. Also, there is the legend that Leonardo buried hints within the painting that the mythical Holy Grail was actually a woman, namely Mary Magdalene. And that's a story for another time. I think I've actually addressed it before, and maybe I'll even address it again because it's really interesting. Um, and while there's others who study the Last Supper, they swear they see UFOs in the sky in the background. Leonardo da Vinci, as we know, was the epitome of a Renaissance man. We know that he was a genius, a polymath, a pioneer in fields as diverse as anatomy and hydrodynamics. We know that he invented the tank, the helicopter, the flying machine, the parachute, and the self-powered vehicle. We know that he was a man ahead of his time and that his visionary inventions were not to be realized for centuries. As a matter of fact, he died poor. He was born poor and he died poor. So there's often times when I'm trying to work on something and I'm like, I don't have enough money to do this. Well, maybe it's not money that I'm lacking. Maybe it's curiosity. Like, you know, find another way to do this. If I don't have money and I'll just have to find another way to do it. And that takes work, and that takes time and attention. But Leonardo did it. <clears throat> that means there's the potential that we can all do that. As previously mentioned, he was trained in Florence in the 1470s <clears throat> when the workshops of some major artists not only took on art in every kind of medium, but also they would do tasks that we would now classify as engineering. <coughs> Excuse me. Still dealing with upper respiratory stuff. His master, Andrea del Verrocchio, was famous chiefly as a sculptor, but he was also responsible for the soldering and erection of the great copper ball at the top of the dome of Florence's cathedral. If you have been there, you know what this is. This brought the young engineering apprentice, Leonardo, into direct contact with the lifting and construction devices of the great Filippo Brunelleschi. 
<clears throat> Brunelleschi, architect of the dome. And you're going to see Brunelleschi's work all over Italy. Go to Italy. I mean, you know, I have pride in the way that I'm Italian, but <clears throat> even if I wasn't, there's just something about that nation, there's something about that country where no matter where you walk, you're wondering like what works of genius are hidden from sight just walking down the street while you're looking at works of genius all around you. It, it's amazing what happened uh, at that time in Italy and especially places like Florence. So anyway, um, Brunelleschi um, was the architect of the dome. Okay, these artists slash engineers were employed to produce a wide range of practical machines of the kind that rarely leave their mark in written and drawn records. So, like I said, there's a bunch of hidden genius in Florence. So Leonardo... Um, he produced ingenious design designs for sluices, okay, of sliding gates or lock gates. We know about this because of a memorandum in which he speaks of the sluices for rivers that he arranged for the Venetians in 1500 um, when he was visiting the Maritime Republic. So, again, if you've been to Venice... It's a city on water. You know that canals bisect just about every street in the city. You're walking down the street and you're stopped because there's a canal right in front of you and you have to turn around and find another way to your destination and you will get lost. So Venice sits in the middle of a lagoon, which is in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. And Leonardo goes there to visit, and he designed sluices for them. Because he was probably walking down the street, too, and found he couldn't get where he wanted to go. So let's create some sliding gates. How do I do that? And he starts to create these things. So we know this from a memorandum rather than something that exists today, unfortunately. But at least we have that memorandum. This artist, this engineer, and this scientist who lived a life of boundless curiosity died in 1519. He was 67 years old and he, we don't know if he had any children. Again, it's um, widely believed that he was gay. Doesn't mean he couldn't have had children, but none that we know of. Leonardo would sit and stare for hours at seemingly nothing, but his wheels were always spinning. He loved the way light hit leaves and formed shadows. He was somebody who said, pause for a moment and look at the way the water is falling into the pond. These are the types of things he noticed. Details in nature and in human beings so we can and we should push ourselves to notice the things that Leonardo would have noticed. 
Now, I want to talk for a moment about why the Renaissance ended, because I think this is also relevant to the way we live modern life. The end of the Renaissance period ties in directly with Florence's decline. It first began with the invasion of Florence by France in 1494. And um, Italy itself was a, it wasn't one nation, it was this conglomeration of city-states. So Italy itself was at war with each other. The flourishing Renaissance political and intellectual movements were met by backlash by people um, who were threatened by Florence's power. And it wasn't brute power, even though they had that because they were genius enough to know how to create death machines, but it was their intelligence, it was their education, it was their artistry, it was their creativity. It met with backlash. And there was probably some religious thing going on too, because anytime you take God and you see yourself as some sort of superior um, sage in the ways of God, you're able to do things in the name of the absolute, and that creates war. It has nothing to do with God, really, but you've aggrandized yourself. And that's partially what led to these wars in Italy. By the 1550s, many of the artworks and literature that helped develop the Renaissance were banned. And by the mid-1550s, the Renaissance was over completely in Italy. Now, thank heaven, it was alive across Europe in, in different places, and we could study all those different places too. So thank heaven, European countries were keeping the era alive, even after the Italian Renaissance ended. War ruins everything. Greed ruins everything. Stealing from someone and imitating it ruins everything. But the good news is that art and science are eternal. They are the guiding spirit again that is innate in us all. The term Renaissance man refers to the highly influential people who shaped this period of time, masters of invention, engineering, creativity, and travel, with some of their discoveries and inventions still widely used to this day. And we can bring back this rebirth and this revival if we ourselves are Renaissance men and women. To summarize, we need to cultivate the following in our own lives to become Renaissance men and women. We need to recognize magic in ourselves even and especially at the most minute level. Then we can reclaim this social, political, economic community and thrive once again, just like they, they did in the Renaissance. So I'm going to share with you seven steps of what we need to get there.
to become the Renaissance. So first of all, just like we've been talking about, we need to have and cultivate curiosity. We need to take an insatiably curious approach to life and an unrelenting quest for continuous learning. One characteristic of the great minds is that they go on asking confounding questions with the same intensity throughout their lives. And I was talking last week about the superager brain. <clears throat> the people who have, who are like 80 and beyond, who have the memories of somebody in their, you know, middle age, these people actually thrive on confounding questions that they have to work hard to answer. And we need this same intensity throughout your entire life. In da Vinci's case, his loyalty, devotion, and passion were directed to the pure quest for truth and beauty. Great minds ask great questions, like how does the tongue of a woodpecker work? You can increase your problem-solving skills by honoring your question-asking ability, by cultivating a da Vinci-like open questing frame of mind, we broaden our universe and we improve our ability to travel through it. So how do we apply curiosity? Just like Leonardo, keep a journal, keep a notebook, sketch, take notes. Um, what do you write about? Okay, within that notebook, choose a theme for the day. Theme for the day and record the observations in your notebook. Or you can do a stream of consciousness exercise. So choose any question and write your thoughts and associations as they occur without editing. The secret of effective stream of consciousness writing is to just keep writing. The second um, way, if you will, of cultivating ourselves to become Renaissance people is by demonstration. What demonstration is, is a commitment to test any knowledge that you gleaned through experience, persistence, and a willingness to learn from your mistakes. The finest teachers know that experience is the source of wisdom. And the principle of demonstration is the key to making the most of your experience. So how do we apply demonstration? Check your own belief systems. Check your sources. Determine the dominant source of your information. Where did you get that idea that, you're, that you cling so tightly to? See if you hold any beliefs for which you have no experiential verification. And then, oh, this is so important. Hold three points of view all at once. So A is fighting with B. And you might call yourself a diplomat if you see both sides. Yeah, I see why A is saying what A is saying, but I also see why B is saying what B is saying. Can you come up with C? and then hold all three of those points of view at once. So try making the strongest possible argument against your strongly held belief. Try reviewing your belief from a distance, okay? 
Seek out friends who might offer different perspectives. Um, now, here's something that happened when... This was brilliant, and I've never forgotten it. Um, <clears throat> I think I was in sixth, fifth or sixth grade, and it was an election year. And, um, and I know I've talked about this before, but it was so brilliant the way this was done. Now, children they will often speak in political terms, but what they're doing is they're usually parroting their mom and dad. So you might find 11-year-old saying, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. So our teachers got us all in one room and they asked us, well, who is voting Democrat? If you could vote, who would be voting Democrat? Half the room raised their hand. And then, Obviously, the other half of the room was voting Republican. So they said, okay, Republicans, you get onto the right side of the room, and the Democrats get onto the left side of the room. So we all moved to our part of the room. And then the teacher said, you guys, you're going to learn how to campaign for your candidate. So you're going to be handing out buttons. You're going to be um, uh, taking... Um, Oh, come on. Why am I boofing this word in my head? When you petition, thank you. You're going to take petitions and, you know, create little rallies. So we're all excited about this. But then here was the twist. They said, those of you on the left side of the room, the Democrats, you're going to campaign for the Republican candidate. And you guys who are conservative on the right side of the room, you're going to campaign for the Democrat. So we had to learn the platform of the opposing party's candidates, and we had to campaign. And I don't remember if everybody really took part in this, but my mom was excited about this because they, they okayed this with the parents. <clears throat> and so my mom got really involved in this with me. And I will tell you on election day, um, when the president, you know, was elected, like everybody, we like all rejoiced because we all had a new president and we were all united together because the people who originally wanted that guy, they got him. Whereas the people who campaigned for him, they campaigned hard for him, even though they didn't agree with them. And so they rejoiced. It was really cool. And I tried to replicate that experiment in my adulthood um, with a, a couple dinner parties and it did not work. The people could not do it. And I tried to pick the most open-minded people I knew. And I said, take the other point of view and defend it. And they, they couldn't do it. Something's wrong with our society. I'm not saying anything is wrong with the individuals, but there's something wrong with our society that prevents us, like it's almost sacrilegious to hold this other point of view. Anyway, we need to do that. We need to practice internal... I couldn't come up with a term for this, so I'm going to call it commercial deconstruction. So go through your favorite magazine um, or watch the commercials between your favorite TV shows and analyze the strategy and tactics for each advertisement. Note which advertisement 
affects you the most strongly and why. Now, when I was a young woman, you know, there's like magazines out there that are geared toward teenagers and young women. And there, there's a couple ads that really freaked me out because they're selling something to you. Um, but it's the way, like there was this really awesome pair of shoes, like these designer shoes and the advertisement, it was in an alley and there was a trash can and there was a woman upside down in the trash can with her legs sticking up out of the trash can and her feet were wearing these shoes. And I'm like, what are you trying to tell us there? Like you're trash unless you're wearing these shoes. And it was just so violent. <coughs> and the shoes were red. And it really affected me. And like I would never buy those shoes now. Even I liked them. I liked the shoes, but I would never buy them. Just after seeing that horrible ad that did catch my attention and to this day I can't get get it out of my head. Um, we need to learn from anti-role models. So make a list of at least three people who have made in your head definitive mistakes that you would like to avoid. And how can you learn from those mistakes? So don't judge these people. <clears throat> but take note of them and take note of their mistakes and how can you learn like these people are your teachers so how can you learn from them the third um point i'd like to make is sensation sensation is the continual refinement of senses um especially sight um as the means to enliven an experience Leonardo da Vinci believed that secrets are revealed through the senses, especially sight. And he called it saper vedere, which is knowing how to see, which was one of his mottos and the cornerstone for his artistic and scientific work. Again, he was able to see muscles working that weren't in the picture, if you will. So a way to apply sensation into your life is to um, describe an experience in detail. So if you went out and you had an awesome dinner somewhere, don't just say, oh, that restaurant is awesome. No, talk about the food. Like there was this one time I went to Maple and Ash with a friend of mine after work. And it was awesome because it was El Fresco dining in the evening and they had these fire pillars so to keep you warm because it was a little bit of a chilly evening. So the ambiance was already really awesome. And then they served us, I think it was tuna carpaccio. And I took a bite of it and it tasted like what church smells like, but in a really good way. And I said to my friend, this tastes like church. And she was laughing. She's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, taste this. And then she tasted it and she goes, oh my gosh, I know what you're saying, this this tastes like what my grandmother's Bible smells like. And I'm like, is this frankincense? You know, because, but it was good. It wasn't overpowering, it was really good. And so um, we saw the maitre d' and we're like, what? what's in that? And she went through the list of all the ingredients that were in that and what it was, was, 
fried capers. Fried capers. You're thinking that's so simple. And it just turned this dish into something completely different. Sensation. Um, study the lives and work of your favorite artists. Learn how to draw. Listen to the sounds around you. Learn to listen from the loudest sounds like, you know, city traffic to the softest sounds, which is your own breathing. Fourth step, enhance the nuances of your own life. Nuanced living is a willingness to embrace ambiguity, paradox, and uncertainty. Da Vinci's phenomenal ability to hold the tension of opposites, to embrace uncertainty, ambiguity, and paradox was a critical characteristic of his genius. We might even call him an agent of change because he just went with the nuances that life brought him. And this is actually probably the hardest practice for me is this point. So there's two ways of applying nuance. So make friends with ambiguity. Don't try to control anything. Just notice when life flips upside down, like what was the hinge of that? What made it flip up upside down? Be curious about it, okay? Um, or where you're like in a limbo, like you're waiting to hear back from the college that you applied to. Um, and there's nothing you can do or you're sitting in an ER because, you know, your spouse had a heart attack and, and you don't, you have no power. You're just sitting there. So like try to, even in those difficult moments, try to look at the different nuances like what went wrong, what could go right, um, what can you do in the future to... Um, balance your life and not be thrown off when something goes awry. Um, cultivate confusion endurance. So sharpen your senses in the face of paradox. And you can do it by asking questions like, how are my strengths and weaknesses related? What is the relationship between my saddest moments and my most joyful ones? And I know when my mom died, and this was so hard, even though I knew it at the time, and I certainly know it now, that the dying process was also a sacred time with her. It was a special time. And no, you don't ever want to see your mother dying, but at the same time, it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm going to just go with the word sacred. I think she left me some of her strength in that process because I was able to withstand her death where I, I thought I couldn't. Among other things, there was so much to learn. Anyway, um, fifth, um, art and science. Art and science is the development of the balance between science and art logic and imagination. It's whole brain thinking. They were not only artists, they were engineers. You can use one simple but powerful method for cultivating a synergy between logic and, and in imagination in your everyday thinking, planning, and problem solving. Um, Cicero, another great Italian, a Roman, an orator and a politician. He 
was constantly giving these very long, long speeches. How does he keep track of that? Because he didn't have paper the way we have paper now. And he certainly didn't have a teleprompter. So what he did, it, it's called Roman rooms or a Roman palace. And what you do, well, on a small scale, here's what you can do. You can picture your bedroom, okay? And let's say you have five points you want to make in your speech. So the first point, you might put it under your mattress. Your second point, you might put that in your sock drawer. Your third point, you might put that on the windowsill. Your fourth point, you might put that on the shelf in the closet. And the fifth, you might put on the rug underneath or right next to the door. So let's say you're giving this speech and you've lost your place. So you're like, okay, wait, I covered what was in the mattress and now I gotta go to the sock drawer. Oh yes, that idea was in the sock drawer. And you continue your speech without getting lost. Um, another way to do this is, <clears throat> sorry, I, I sneezed. Another way you can do this is called mind mapping. Google this, Google mind mapping. So you start out with a single concept and then um, in the center of your page, and then you branch off into associated representations of that idea. So it kind of looks like a, um, like a tree or um, what they've called spider mapping. Um, this will help you um, balance your logic and your imagination. It will help you think with your full brain. Um, I like the Roman room idea, but mind mapping is something that people utilize as well. Sixth point, to be become a Renaissance man or woman, accept your own body or your corp corporality. Corporality is the cultivation of grace and dexterity, fitness and poise. Da Vinci's extraordinary physical gifts complemented his intellectual and artistic genius. And here's some ways to apply corporality. Develop your own fitness program. Now, some of us are going to do the, you know, thousand pound club. And others of us are going to walk up and down the length of our living room. Do it every day. Persistence. So try to include, though, aerobic conditioning, strength training, and flexibility exercises into your personal fitness program. Develop body awareness. Study practical anatomy. Cultivate ambidexterity. So both um, Leonardo and Michelangelo they regularly switched hands as they worked. So you can try using your non-dominant hand for things like brushing your teeth or eating your breakfast um, first, and then try your non-dominant hand for writing. So I wouldn't start out writing, like if you're right-handed, I wouldn't start out writing with the left hand because it's gonna be a scribble, but do things with your left hand that you normally don't do because you're using your right hand for everything. So cultivate ambidexterity. 
my seventh and last step to becoming a Renaissance man or woman is connection, a recognition and appreciation for the interconnectedness of all things and phenomena. Systems thinking. One secret of da Vinci's unparalleled creativity is his lifelong practice of combining and connecting different elements to form new patterns. So here's an example of a way to apply connection to your life. Look at things that at first glance seem unrelated and find different ways to link them. You can try to find connections between a bullfrog and the internet, mathematics and the Last Supper. And one of the coolest things for me to do is to compare Botticelli's painting La Primavera to music, math, and botany because it's all there. You can have imaginary dialogues. This is something I do probably 24-7. Talking with an imaginary role model is a time-honored and very effective way to gain insight and perspective. You can also imagine discussions on your problem between different characters. And origin thinking. Think about the origins of different things. Choose an object, any object, object and considered all the elements involved in its creation from its very beginning. So as you endeavor to think the way Leonardo da Vinci thought, by improving your thinking through imagination, logic, and your own body, you will discover that your brain is much better than you think. Your brain is more flexible and multidimensional than any supercomputer to date. You can learn seven facts per second, every second, for the rest of your life and still have plenty of room left to learn more. You can and will improve with age if you use your brain properly. And it's not just in your head. According, according to renowned neuroscientist Dr. Candace Pert, intelligence is located not only in the brain but in the cells that are distributed throughout the body. The traditional separation of mental processes, including emotions, from the body is no longer valid. Your brain is unique. Of the 6 billion people currently living and the more than 90 billion people who have ever lived, there has never, even if you are an identical twin, been anyone quite like you. Your creative gifts, your fingerprints, your expressions, your DNA, your dreams are unprecedented and unique. And your brain is capable of making virtually unlimited number of synaptic connections and potential patterns of thought. Leonardo da Vinci was a scientist, a mathematician, an engineer, an inventor, an anatomist, a painter, sculptor, architect, botanist, musician, and writer. It is estimated that he had an IQ between 180 to 200. Now, most of us don't have that, but we can still operate like he did. Da Vinci Mind is the tool we need to enhance our aptitudes personally, spiritually, intellectually, socially, physically, and creatively and that we can share with the rest of the world. We've hit an hour. I'm not gonna do bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. Instead, use this time to go get yourself a notebook and think like 
Da Vinci did. Until next week, Arrivederci.